I'm Bonnie. And I'm Sydney. And this is Introduced from Wisconsin Sea Grant. We, we, we always joke in, in, the, in the emergency response realm that, that weird events always come on a Friday, like right before closing. And then you get to stew on it over the weekend. Um, in this case, actually, I got a little bit of a heads up uh, on, on Sunday. It was July 2020. Christopher Deegan, State Plant Health Director for Wisconsin, gets an email from Brian Huddleston from UW-Madison. Brian said he's seen these Facebook posts of people getting packages of seeds in the mail, and it looks like they're coming from China. The people getting these seeds said they didn't order them. On Monday uh, is when national media carried the story. Uh, and that's that's when email and phone lines uh, sort of just blew up. <laughs> Wisconsinites who call Christopher's office are pretty direct and to the point. They usually say something like, I'm seeing things on my Facebook feed and on the news, and I think I have some of these seeds, and what do I do with them? I think in the, in the first few days, there were over a thousand of those calls uh, just for Wisconsin. So <laughs> uh, it, it got to be the point where, where it was obvious that, that you know, we weren't getting anything done because uh, you know, we were either answering phones or individual emails. And it wasn't just Wisconsin. <laughs> these seeds were sent to, to all 50 states and to DC and to Puerto Rico and Guam and American Samoa, all our, all our overseas territories as well. So there was, there was no place that, that was not <laughs> experiencing what, what we experienced here. So at this point, everyone's wondering, like, what is happening? Is this, like, malicious? Is someone doing this to, like, be really destructive? And are these seeds, like, invasive or noxious? So when the United States Department of Agriculture starts to put all these pieces together and, like, get a sense of just how widespread this problem is, they tell the public to send their seed packets into their statewide offices. So in Wisconsin, people start sending their seeds to Christopher. The seeds came in small international mail envelopes. Inside, there were tiny Ziploc baggies of seeds. Sometimes they would have a label saying squash, corn, or tomato. And sometimes they'd say really weird things like earrings or jewelry or something like that. We actually had to set up a separate bin in the mailroom uh, to handle all the, all the seeds that were coming in. Uh, it didn't fit in our regular, uh, regular slot there in the mailroom. And just looking at the seeds, they were really, really common. Uh, vegetable, flower, and fruit seeds. Uh, things that, that any of us would have in our, in our backyard gardens. You know, cucumbers, squash, tomatoes, sunflowers, zinnias. Invasive species alone in the U.S. cost us about $40 billion a year uh, just to address and, and respond to invasive plant pests and disease issues. And so it's, it's a big concern to us when, when you have any kind of quantity of uninspected or uncertified plant material coming into the U.S. So are people all over the state receiving these seeds or was it coming from just like certain places? Here's Christopher. It was it was everybody. Uh, you know, we, I, I got things from, from little towns way up in Vilas County. I got stuff from Milwaukee, Madison, Eau Claire. It, it, it did not discriminate between urban and rural. And it was, it felt completely random too. <laughs> As word started to spread about the seeds and concern grew and people got packages in the mail, 
um, they would start sending them into Chris, but sometimes the things they were sending in had nothing to do with the seeds at all. It got to the point, uh, there, there, this, this didn't happen a lot, but some people were so, I guess, concerned by, by the reports of all these seeds coming from China. Uh, the, once in a while, we, we would get a package that, that was from China, um, but it wasn't seeds. People would just like get this thing from Amazon and, and see that it came from China and they would immediately send it to us. And so, you know, um, because because this was July of 2020, uh, we we got a lot of packages that had um, cloth masks, for example, that people had ordered, but they didn't want to open the package. So they sent it to us. Uh, and then there were all kinds of weird things, too. Um, there was their baby onesie. Somebody had ordered a onesie and instead of opening it, they sent it to us. It's like, okay, well, thanks. I got your onesie. <laughs> um, and in those cases, actually, it was pretty simple because, you know, we had their contact information. We would email them or call them and say, okay, thanks. Thanks for sending us uh, your package. Turns out it's not seeds. Would you like it back? So we can have all of our packages forwarded to you just to check if they're seeds before we get them. <laughs> um, yes, please don't. <laughs> I remember hearing about the seeds when it became kind of a national news story last summer. And I don't know, Bonnie, if you got the seeds in the mail, do you, what do you think you would have done with them? Like, I, I would have been very tempted to plant them, I think. Yeah, I when I heard about this, I really wanted a packet just um, for reporting purposes, of course. But um, I didn't get any. But if I did, I might have tried to plant them. I know, I would have been so curious. Mm -hmm. I asked Christopher if he was tempted to plant any himself, you know, just to see what would come up. No, not at all. <laughs> um, and that was actually one of one of the first notices that we put out to the public was that, hey, if you did receive these seeds, please don't plant them. Um, you don't know where they're coming from. You don't know where they were grown, uh, what they might have been exposed to, what they might be carrying. It's, it's kind of like taking candy from strangers, right? It's just like, yeah. Better, better be safe than sorry. During the height of all of this, Christopher's office was getting between 100 and 200 shipments of seeds a week from all across Wisconsin. So when his office received these seeds, they'd send them off to a national office for an official analysis. At the beginning, Christopher and his colleagues had some theories about why people were getting the seeds. Uh, one of the strange things about the, the, the seed event is that it happened so late in the year so you think of, of planting season, and that's usually like around April, May. Uh, but these seeds were being sent, you know, in June, July, uh, and then people were still getting them in August and September. Um, so I, I would hazard a guess that, that some of it had to do with COVID and how we had lots of shipping disruptions uh, in the spring of 2020. Um, so there may have been some people who had actually ordered seeds uh, online. Um, and they probably ordered them for delivery in the spring, but because of the shipping disruptions, they didn't get them and they weren't received until later in that summer. So August through end of October, maybe into November was, was the biggest crunch. So where exactly were these seeds coming from? This was the weirdest part to me. All of the seeds were being sent from the same four to five addresses in China. That's super strange. Right? Um, and then were any of them harmful? That's what I would be worried about. 
Yeah, so Christopher, walk me through some of the data. For Wisconsin, uh, of, of the thousand or so samples that, that we got in, um, only about 40 of them had any issues of concern, and those were almost all federal noxious weeds. So so what we would see was like maybe in a, in a packet of squash seeds, there'd be one or two, um, like an invasive grass of some sort. Uh, most most of the, the federal noxious weed seeds that were identified were, um, uh, interesting enough, Ipomoea aquatica, daughter, Cuscuda uh, species, and uh, Poaceae. If you're not familiar with plants, I'm definitely not too savvy on this. Um, Poaceae are a family of grasses. Cuscuda uh, is this little orange vine that becomes a parasite on its host plant, and they're both considered to be federally noxious weeds. But my ears perked up when I heard aquatica. Epimea aquatica is water spinach. So water spinach is a floating aquatic plant that people all over the world eat for food actually, but it spreads really quickly here in the US, so it's on the noxious weed list. It's native to a warmer climate, so Christopher seemed to think it would be able to survive maybe in Texas or Florida, but probably not in Wisconsin. But you never want to risk something like that, and besides, it's prohibited here. So why did this happen? Like, why did these four or five places in China send all these seeds, these random seeds? So one thing that might have happened is some people ordered seeds and then forgot about them, and COVID caused all kinds of shipping delays, and maybe that's why seeds started to arrive way late into the season, like July and into August. Um, when people had like put it out of their mind. Um, but then there's this other theory that the seed shipments were part of something called an internet brushing scheme. For USDA, we actually found no evidence that, that anyone was, was trying to intentionally harm uh, American agriculture with these shipments. It, it, it seemed to be part of, of what's called an internet brushing scheme, um, which, is, which is something that an internet seller can undertake in order to try to boost their ratings. And this usually involves sending little little uh, packets of, of relatively inexpensive material to fake buyers. From my understanding, what brushing means is if you're a company that has a listing on Amazon or something and um, you want your listings to be higher, on like the search cues when people search things on Amazon. That has to do with how you're rated. And one factor that goes into ratings is just how many packages you send out. But like in order to have like a valid delivery, you have to like send this packet, you have to send packages somewhere. So um, sometimes this happens and companies will literally just send empty boxes places. And in this case, they were sending seeds, which <laughs> can grow and become invasive. So um, that, that was one theory. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I'm kind of impressed with these, um, <laughs> the people behind this scheme, because it's just like, how do you even go about getting like thousands of names that are in like every single state and sending out this many packages? Like it's, <laughs> it's so kind of impressive. Right. And like, how does your how would someone's name end up in this company's address book and why didn't we get any like <laughs> right. why didn't we investigative reporters like we obviously could use this content like why weren't our addresses in there i feel left out honestly but yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> but eventually 
Eventually, Christopher's office stopped receiving so many shipments of seeds and also onesies and other packages. Um, and Christopher was able to get back to his usual work. This was unique in that this is the first time we had internet origin seed coming in on a national scale. Often, oftentimes, we, we, we have one-offs, uh, you know, that we'll respond to. Somebody gets something weird and then maybe once a month, once every couple months, we'll get a call like this. But this is the first time we saw it happening all across the country and within a really short time frame. <clears throat> but I'd also like to say that the part of the reason we do our jobs and why, why our jobs are actually pretty interesting is that, that we never actually know what new event we have to respond to. Uh, so we kind of learned to expect the unexpected. About nine months later, the country got another unexpected surprise. An aquatic invasive species was showing up in spots that no one thought to look. Zebra mussels strike fear into the hearts of water people. They spread really quickly. They're almost impossible to remove. They clog pipes and they're really sharp when you step on them. But in March of 2021, a zebra mussel was found hitchhiking on something that was a lot cuter. I've seen those on TikTok. It's cute. They're quite cute. Yeah, I've seen them in stores. Yeah. Yeah. That was my family and some family friends. We were on a hike and I was showing them pictures of moss balls. Moss balls. Moss balls. My role was kind of getting the ball moving. Wesley Daniels coordinates the Non-Indigenous Aquatic Species Database, run by the U.S. Geological Survey, or USGS. They collect reports of non-native species throughout the country that people might spot in different water systems. Wes was in his Florida home on March 2nd, 2021, and he gets a surprising notification on this database. Someone had reported a zebra mussel and this wouldn't have been out of the ordinary to see, like, a report from the Great Lakes region. Yeah, there's so many zebra mussels in the Great Lakes. Yeah, exactly. In 1988, three young researchers were studying the bottom of Lake St. Clair, which connects Lake Erie to Lake Huron. And they were monitoring and they pulled up some strange mussels that were then identified as the zebra mussel. Large international ships will take in water when they're in, say, European ports. And then when they get to the Great Lakes, they release that water. And they also release whatever tiny hitchhikers are surviving that international journey. Zebra mussels and their cousin quagga mussels didn't have any predators in the lakes. Now, 30 years later, they are a super dominant species. Mussels feed by voraciously filtering tiny plants and algae out of the water. And you might think, isn't it good to have them filtering the water, like making it really clear? But mussels filter out the nutrients needed by all the other species in the lake, which can leave other lake dwellers like larval fish scrambling to find food. In the Great Lakes, the water clarity isn't a sign of a healthy lake. It's actually the opposite. In some conditions, mussels can now filter all of Lake Michigan in less than two weeks. It's only been about 40 years since zebra and quagga mussels were introduced to North America, and we're still trying to figure out what this new reality means for the Great Lakes. Meanwhile, people boating and traveling have spread them farther than the Great Lakes, like into the Mississippi River Basin, all the way down the Mississippi River to Texas and Louisiana. But 
The western half of the United States is still really relatively free of zebra mussels. And ironically, the database that we just talked about, it was started because of the zebra mussel introduction. In 1990, the USGS wanted to be able to nationally track new occurrences of species. And so fast forward to March 2021, Wes got a zebra mussel report from Seattle. And a zebra mussel wasn't seen in like a lake or a river or a pond. It was seen in a pet store on a moss ball. Okay, so what's a moss ball? Right, so moss balls aren't actually moss, they're algae. They're these spherical green balls and people put them in their fish tanks for decoration. They do have some natural filtration abilities so they can help filter your tank a little bit, I guess. Or you can even just keep them as kind of a pet in a jar. Like, check out this picture. I'm checking it out. Hang on. Oh my god, it's so cute. It's just a little... <laughs> it's just a little ball of moss with a hat on it. <laughs> People put googly eyes on them. That is so funny. I could see getting attached. <laughs> People just like will keep a moss ball that's floating in the middle of like a little jar and this company like puts little tiny cowboy hats on them. <laughs> so this moss ball zebra mussel report, it came from a pet co in Seattle. So Wes gets this report and he looks at the picture attached and he was like, yeah, that's definitely a zebra mussel on there. So the next question is, is this incident more widespread than this one pet store? So Wes decides to go to his local pet store in Gainesville, Florida. So um, when, I, when I went into the pet store, I was not expecting to find anything. I thought it was kind of a needle in a haystack situation. And initially with the first sighting in Seattle, I thought maybe this was just a fluke. Um, but the first moss ball I picked up, which is in a small isolated jar of its own water, um, had a zebra moss on the outside. I didn't have to open it. I didn't have to like separate the moss out or the, the algae out to, to look for it. The zebra mussel that I found was just on the outside. Zebra mussels are small kind of triangular bivalves. Uh, they're about the size of your nail. So maybe your pinky nail to your thumb. They're kind of triangular in shape with dark um, lines on them. It's where they get their name zebra and they have these very distinct kind of lines that um, give them kind of a zebra stripe pattern. Um, I reported it to the manager. Um, she was very understanding and she withdrew all the samples, all the moss balls off the shelf because she understood the, the dangers from them. Wes has gotten to talk to this person who reported the zebra mussel, this pet store employee in Seattle, a few times since he got that notification. He says the cider had seen these mussels since January. So if they were being imported in January, like they had gone undetected or unreported for at least a few months out there on the shelves. The first cider had tried to report the mussels a few times. She was persistent, I'll say that, because she had tried to report it to other groups and um, kind of failed. And she found our database through a Google search and reported it to us. She had tried to report this to a few environmental groups, but I guess they weren't invasive species focused groups and probably didn't know what to do with this information. It would have been easy for any of us to do that initial report, feel like I did my job and then just step away and just not do anything else. She was really, really dedicated to making sure that this information got into the right hands. And so 
Uh, she needs a lot of credit for that. So Wes got home from his local Gainesville pet store and he was like, I've got to alert state and federal agencies about this. And the ball was rolling, so to speak. When I saw the email, I first knew that they were out in Western states, but I wanted to make sure that it wasn't reaching out here in Wisconsin. Amy Kretlow remembers being included on an email chain on March 3rd, the same day that West notified the Fish and Wildlife Service about these sightings. Amy is with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, and she's responsible for responding to new aquatic invasive species in the southern half of the Lake Michigan Basin. So this email was troubling to her. I did not know one thing about mothballs before I heard about this. Um, and I work in a, I worked in Madison for about nine months in organisms and trade. And I would visit pet stores, but I even at that point, I didn't even know what a mothball was. I looked for snails and plants at that time, not mothballs. <laughs> Amy's first instinct was the same as the one that Wes had. I went to visit my local PetSmart, <laughs> and when I went in, I did find the mothballs for sale, and they had zebra mussels on there. But the thing was, these mothballs weren't just going to Wisconsin and Florida and Seattle. Mothballs infested with zebra mussels were soon found in 41 states in all Canadian provinces. This is the first time we've had this kind of national importation um, crisis. The first time they've had a national importation crisis that they know of, which is kind of scary to me. Yeah. Was this really the first time something like this has happened, or is it just the first time we've noticed that something like this has happened? On the one hand, maybe it is really because the internet is only increasing access to non-local plants and animals, so the opportunity for something like this to happen is, is only going to get greater. Right, and... We did a whole episode about invasives online. You can listen to episode seven. It's about how as more people get connected, there's just more opportunity for plants and animals to be like shipped across the country in like one day, you know? It's probably a good sign. Well, I mean, it's definitely a good sign that this got detected mm. and it <laughs> gives me hope. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, this could potentially be the first time that this has happened, the first time that an invasive species has kind of been a hitchhiker in a different industry that we weren't thinking about, but I feel like it probably won't be the last. But this was a national crisis and it is a really big problem because of the zebra mussels. Like what memories do you have about zebra mussels growing up near the Great Lakes? Well, I... I do remember like walking down the beach and like just having your foot completely cut up um, because of how just dense the zebra mussels were on the sand. And now I know um, the algae blooms that I remember from like growing up near like Michigan, um, that might have something to do with zebra mussels too. If you go back and listen to episode 16, The Lake on the Edge, I talked to Dick Lathrop from UW-Madison Center for Limnology, and he gave me a really thorough explanation of how zebra mussels shunt nutrients from the middle of the lake into the shoreline. And that sets, that kind of sets in motion this series of changes in a lake food web. It, and it really favors bottom feeders like carp and catfish maybe near the shore. 
and then creates way less optimal conditions for fish like walleye and um, perch way out in the middle of the lake. So yeah, that's uh, that's kind of what I've heard. Yeah, and on top of that, each female zebra mussel lays one million eggs per year. So it just gets out of hand so fast, yeah. <laughs> it really does. Each of these eggs, once it hatches, it goes through this larval stage. The larval stage of a zebra mussel is this tiny, tiny microscopic organism called a veliger. They're about the width of human hair, so they're so tiny and they swim, they're free swimming. Well, they kind of, they kind of drift along with the current. So once a zebra mussel lays eggs, that water, you know, that contains the veliger can be moved anywhere. They can float to other parts of the lake. So you can see how that can get out of hand. My fear with this is that people would buy the moss balls, put them in their tanks. And then when you do have an aquarium set up, you have to do water changes and, and you don't know what villagers could be in that water cycle you know when you're doing a water change and that could be going down drains and into other water systems and then there's also if you have a tank and you decide that you don't want your goldfish anymore people just release those in streams and lakes and they could be you know if there's the moss balls in there that have zebra mussels on those could be you know released that way I've heard a lot about businesses along the Great Lakes having to spend so much money each year to stop zebra mussels from clogging their pipes. So like, could this happen on kind of like the back end if uh, you dumped your tank out in your house and it had villagers in the water? Right. That's a great question. One I was curious about, too, because in the Great Lakes, the zebra mussels will just kind of colonize any hard surface. So they'll go into power plants and they'll just clog the pipes, you know? So it's like, could this happen in someone's house? It turns out that zebra mussels in the Great Lakes, they're getting this constant, constant supply of food and that allows them to get to this really big population. And so from what I'm seeing, there probably wouldn't be enough nutrients going down like someone's kitchen drain to sustain a population of zebra mussels. Yeah. But like Amy said, if that water in your in your fish tank or in your moss ball jar like gets out into your backyard pond or backyard lake or something you know Wisconsin has 15,000 lakes and only a fraction of those have zebra mussels right now so only like 282 of our lakes and rivers have already seen a zebra mussel introduction so there's a lot of lakes out there that we can still protect and Taking boats and gear between lakes is, is always just gonna be a risk, unfortunately, because zebra mussels, even if you take them out of water, like if they touch your boat, take it out of water, they can survive for days. So the only good way to prevent moving zebra mussels that might be introduced in one lake to a different one is to clean off your boat and gear, drain all the water out of it, and then let it dry for five days. Another problem though is that moss balls could carry more than just zebra mussels, like viruses and organisms and even other types of mussels, which is um, stressful. So it's really concerning that zebra mussels and more could be hitchhiking into pet stores all across just the, the Great Lakes region and also the whole country, the whole continent. 
Back in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, Amy Kretlow figured the first thing she needed to do was see which pet stores in Wisconsin had moss balls and which of those moss balls had zebra mussels and to get those off the shelves ASAP. Petco was the known variable because Petco was the chain store that they were first found in. So Petco already kind of knew that this was happening. They, they were pulling moss balls and PetSmart was discovered as well. So they were already pulling their moss balls. But what about all the other pet stores? With pet stores, they are unlicensed in Wisconsin. And we don't have a great way of really tracking what pet stores there are in Wisconsin. So it's really hard. It was that was my biggest fear of how can we contact all these stores? And that's when I reached out to our partners, our county AIS partners, and asking for their help and their local knowledge of knowing what pet stores are in their counties. We talked to Amy about a month after this moss ball incident came to light. And she said she was still having volunteers come back with data sheets from pet stores throughout the state. So did they find any? After the break, I'll tell you about that. Water research mysteries. Teachers connecting kids with the Great Lake in their communities. Erosion and dangerous currents. These are just some of the stories offered by Wisconsin Sea Grant and the University of Wisconsin Water Resources Institute. A monthly podcast series, Wisconsin Water News, highlights stories previously available only in print from these programs. Series narrator and science communicator Marie Zwickoff brings the stories alive by featuring in-person and phone interviews with the people behind the news. Listen and subscribe to Wisconsin Water News on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or at Sea grant.wisc.edu. So back to Amy Kretlow of the Wisconsin DNR. In Wisconsin, we weren't doing an effort of getting the moss balls. You know, if there was any in the pet stores, it was just more of an effort of getting the information out there. Out West, I do know that they did have efforts where I believe law enforcement staff or warden staff would go and actually collect the moss balls and they had thousands in evidence, but we didn't, we weren't going to do that route. Amy estimated that there was probably about 100 pet stores in Wisconsin, and she sent volunteers to all of those, excluding the Pet Co. and the PetSmart that she already knew about. And out of those 100 stores, about 60% sold moss balls. 60% of the pet stores would carry moss balls, but none had zebra mussels on them. So no, no independent pet stores had these contaminated moss balls. Correct. Thankfully, Amy's volunteers didn't find any zebra mussels out on the shelves, which must have been a real relief. The pet stores were very, actually very happy having the county partners come in and tell them because they were hearing through distributors about this, but they were happy to hear a local contact came in and actually talked to them about it. For the time being, moss ball importation has been stopped. When they resume again in the future, the Fish and Wildlife Service has a plan to carefully check shipments that come into the country. When they're really small, we call villagers. When they're, when they're larval mussels, uh, you can't see them. And so we test, um, we test for their, their DNA. I talked to Amy McGovern from the Fish and Wildlife Service. Fish and Wildlife Service played a huge role in this issue because they have a law enforcement branch 
that works with airports and looks into investigates the transport of invasive species. It's technical and I'm not a geneticist, but we're, we're actually um, testing them with, with handheld units. So you're able to sort of wash a vat of, of moss balls with, with water and then test that water for zebra mussels. And, and that would really be picking up any type of material that would come from a zebra mussel. So um, even if they're really tiny and you can't see them, this device would pick up their DNA. Amy helped push out the official message about moss balls when this first happened. They're like, we need to get this message out here of what to do with your moss ball if, you, if you've got one. Their slogan is destroy, don't dump. Aggressive. <laughs> Two exclamation points in that three word slogan. The take home message there is you don't, you don't just throw your moss ball away. You put it in a bag or freeze it or um, use bleach. And, and so the, the website kind of covers what to do in the event that you think you might have one, um, whether you know it's infected or not. But if you're a, a moss ball owner, please be vigilant and, and destroy, unfortunately, destroy your moss ball because it could really harm um, our environment. Looking back at this incident, I asked Amy what memories would stick with her. Uh, I did learn from a colleague that moss balls, again, can be used in a variety of different ways and um, are in fact passed down sometimes from generation to generation. And, and someone was talking within our group about a moss ball that was 200 years old. <laughs> and I, it was, and I laugh now because I just, I didn't know a lot about moss balls um, before this happened and, and now know a lot about moss balls. But do you have to destroy your 200 year old moss ball? You only have to destroy your moss ball if you purchased it after February 1st of 2021. And you can look at the Fish and Wildlife Services website for details about like how to dispose of your moss ball. Aquatic Invasive Species Coordinators um, we're, we're very committed to what we do, and, and many of us got in the car and drove to our local pet store to see if they were selling moss balls. You know, just that, I think that commitment and that passion for what we do um, is evident in our, our daily routines, too. Back at the beginning of the story, we talked about another first-of-its-kind national importation crisis, the mystery seeds. For most of the summer of 2020, Christopher Deacon's office and USDA facilities around the country were overrun by piles of unsolicited seeds. Now Christopher has had some time to look back on this incident. In this case, because it was a national news event and, and everybody was involved, I, I got a chance to talk to people I don't usually work with, like rural postmasters would call up and say, hey, we're getting people uh, bringing these seed packets back to us. What are we supposed to do with them? Um, I would get calls from county sheriff's office because some folks were taking them down to their, their local police station. Uh, I even got a chance to work with the, the local FBI office in Milwaukee because, you know, when you have something of, of this quantity coming in, there's always concerns like, okay, what, what, what's behind it all? What's, what's the actual risk of what we're seeing? Christopher also wants to encourage everyone to report any strange or unexpected things that you might see growing around you. Whenever people have questions about whether they should be buying something from somewhere, uh, want to know if, it, if it's legal, if it's allowed, uh, we're happy to answer those questions. We also answer questions uh, if, if people see something strange in their, their backyard or in their garden or in their woods. You know, an insect that they've never seen before, 
um, a plant that's behaving strangely, uh, maybe a, a disease that's, that's showed up on, on one of their uh, garden plants that they've never seen before. We're also here to answer those questions. The seeds made the journey over from China. The moss balls were shipped in from Ukraine. When species and seeds like this can be moved and toted from one continent to the next in a matter of days, what can we do to stop the spread of nuisance species? The, the big thing is to be aware of where your purchases are, are originating. Um, and, and yeah, whether it's moss balls, whether it's seeds, whether you're buying uh, growing you know, baby trees, any kind of any kind of live material, especially if you're buying it over the internet. You, as a consumer, you should really do your research and, and find out where it's coming from. I mean, there, there's a trend to buy locally, and, and so that would really help. <laughs> Arguably, zebra mussels could still be on shelves all over the country if the Seattle pet store employee hadn't been persistent with her observations. She saw zebra mussels in a pet store and reported it. And then nothing happened. And then she reported it again. Finally, she reported it to the non-Indigenous Aquatic Species Database, and Wes knew what to do with the information. If you do find something, even if you're not sure if it's non-Native or not, you know, it, it's okay to report it. Take a photo, um, take an accounting of where you are, um, the location to your best of ability. We're always happy to help. In the episode description below, you'll find links to report the things that you see and get the answers that you need. Introduced is produced and hosted by Bonnie Wilson and me, Sydney Wydell. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with a friend. You can find Wisconsin Sea Grant on Twitter at UWISC Sea Grant and on Facebook at University of Wisconsin Sea Grant and Water Resources Institute. We would love to hear from you. Send in your questions and comments to bonnie at aqua.wisc.edu. You can listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.